take your copy of God's Word this morning and open it uh, to where we left off last week in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 this morning will be in verses 1 through 41 and that uh, in segments at a time. As I was uh, reading this week and studying, preparing for this morning, uh, I, I had uh, the thought on thinking of uh, this morning, obviously, looking at the, the coming of the Holy Spirit and the power that comes there, I thought of uh, the old 1980s cartoon, Masters of the Universe. And therein, the main character, Prince Adam of Skull, who, uh, when threatened by Skeletor and his minions, would take out his trusted sword, hold it into the sky, and say, by the power of Skull, I have the power. And he was transformed from Prince Adam of Skull into He-Man and his little uh, pet tiger <laughs> uh, received some armor and a saddle on which He-Man would ride to vanquish Skeletor. And it made me think, about the kind of power that He-Man had in that sword to transform him into this mighty warrior. I'm going to giggle the rest of the sermon thinking about He-Man. The power that he, that he had uh, at, at the whim, at his whim, with this sword in his hands and what he could become. And it made me wonder, what would I do with unlimited power? What would I do? Uh, if I had all of the authority, all of the strength, all of the ability to do anything I wanted, what about you? What would you do with unlimited power? If all of the, if, if all of the power, all of the strength, all of the authority in the world were, were yours to do anything with, what would you do? Would you make yourself rich? Would you uh, bring peace to the Middle East? Would you uh, balance the, the, the national budget? That's funny because our government is shut down right now because I can't do that. If you had unlimited power, what would you do with it? Whose fame would you live for? Whose reputation would you use it to increase, to strengthen? Would you use it for good? Would you use it for evil? Would you use it for your own advancement or would you use it for the advancement of another Here in Acts chapter 2, particularly in the first few verses, we see the coming of the Holy Spirit, the very Spirit of God with all of the power that Jesus promised that it would bring, that he would bring from Acts chapter 1 verse 8, indwelling the disciples as they're gathered in the upper room. And we see what they do immediately with that power. Looking at Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13 to begin, would you stand with me as we read God's word? Here Luke continues as the Holy Spirit carries him on. He says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Speaking of the disciples, the 120 that we saw last week. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues, as of fire, appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. 
And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. God bless the reading of his word. You be seated this morning. Here we have in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verses 1 through 13, maybe the most anticipated event in the life of the church since Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, ultimately his ascension. We have the arrival of the promised Holy Spirit, that which Jesus promised in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. You remember where he said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Here at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit arrives. As we look at his arrival, let us look at the significance of the setting. Let us look at the significance of the scene upon which he arrives. Acts chapter 2 verse 1 tells us that it was the day of Pentecost. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Now, for Christians today, that... That day, Pentecost, has a particular significance of being the day in which the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples. But Pentecost itself had significance prior to the Holy Spirit's coming. Pentecost, also known as the Feast of Weeks, was celebrated 50 days after Passover, seven weeks plus one day. We have instruction for it in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 15, that it was to come this many weeks after the Passover as a celebration of the wheat harvest, which was the first harvest of the calendar year. Now, wheat being a grass grows quickly and uh, develops kernels on the top to be harvested and uh, and, uh, crushed into into flour for use in baking bread. And there are uh, more than one wheat harvest during the year, but at Pentecost... The Jews celebrated the first harvest of the year, the first wheat harvest. It was a celebration of what was called the first fruits, first harvest of the year, the the first evidence of God's provision to them. For the Jews, the Feast of Pentecost, celebration of the first fruits, had, had significance because it showed that once again, year after year, one more time, God was providing. But for Christians... Pentecost, and and for the disciples here in Acts 2, has Christian significance for the fact that the Holy Spirit falls on this day, on the Feast of the First Fruits, to indwell believers as the first fruits of the New Covenant era. Pentecost is significant, not just because this happened to be the day that God chose to send the Holy Spirit, but God chose to send the Holy Spirit on Pentecost as a picture of the first fruits of the New Covenant people, of God's people who are saved by grace in Christ. So let us not miss God's goodness to us in even just the setting of the arrival of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Let us not look just at the setting, but let us look at the arrival of the Holy Spirit itself. The arrival is sudden, isn't it? Verse 2 says, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It filled the whole house where they were sitting. The disciples were expecting the Holy Spirit to come. Jesus told them that he would... They had been devoted to prayer here in this upper room for several days now, waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. And even still, it comes in surprising fashion to them. It comes with great sounds. This is a multi-sensory experience for the disciples. 
Verse 2 tells us that the Holy Spirit comes with a mighty rushing wind, the, the sound of a violent rushing wind. There are sights associated with it. It's not just sounds, but also sights. Verse 3 says, Tongues as of fire appeared and rested on each one of them. We know that fire is, uh, the image of fire is biblically significant, as this is the way that God manifests his presence several places throughout Scripture. From the burning bush to the pillar of fire that guides Israel out of slavery in Egypt to the fire that falls on Elijah's sacrifice in 1 Kings. Fire always shows or regularly shows the presence of the Lord among his people. And now here there are uh, appearing uh, things that look like tongues of fire to these disciples. So there's sounds, there's, there are sights associated with it, and all of this results in, in speech. So the the disciples are not just witnessing the things that are happening, the way that the Holy Spirit is coming, but now they're participating in the Spirit's coming, or the Spirit fills them with an ability to participate. Verse 4 says, They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The appearance of the Holy Spirit as tongues, like tongues of fire, that's, that's Luke's best description as to what it looked like finds a connection then, doesn't it, to the immediate manifestation of the Holy Spirit's power, which is speaking in other known languages. Luke says here they were speaking in tongues, but the understanding here that, that, that we see from verses 6 and 8 later is that the, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, indwelling the lives of the disciples is empowering them to speak languages that they did not previously know, known regional dialects from around the world. This in Acts chapter 2 is not the sort of spiritual or, or some would say angelic prayer language that Paul seems to be referring to in 1 Corinthians 14, but actual regional dialects of language that the disciples have been miraculously given the ability to speak. This is a multi-sensory experience. They hear the Spirit's coming, they see the Spirit's coming, and it results in their speaking. That's how the Holy Spirit arrives, but look at how people react to it. Look at the reaction of those who are there. We see in verses 9 through 11, or verses 5 through 13, excuse me, a larger passage, a global representation of Jews who are gathering at the sound of the wind and the disciples speaking. Verse 5 says, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Just as the disciples had returned to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost in the capital city of Jerusalem, so had many other Jews from around the world. Jews from uh, all over the Roman Empire who did not all speak Aramaic and Greek primarily. They spoke other regional dialects, other languages. Verses 9 through 11 gives us a list of the places that the Jews were from. And here's an image that shows us the, the vastness of their sort of dispersion from which they are coming to Jerusalem. There in the center of the map, you have Jerusalem, and then all around you see all of the different places, Rome, Crete, Cyrene, Egypt, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Pontus, Cappadocia, Mesopotamia, Parthia, Mede, uh, Media, Elam, and Arabia, all centering in to Jerusalem for this Feast of Pentecost. Here, God, to this global representation of Jews in Jerusalem, sends the Holy Spirit upon his disciples to demonstrate with great power the truth of Jesus as God's son and promised Messiah to his people, Israel. And in response to what the disciples and others are proclaiming, there is one effect with two reactions. 
So here you have these disciples plus others, 120, who are speaking the mighty works of God in languages that they don't know to people who do know those languages and are able to understand what is hearing. They're speaking about the mighty works of God and the overall effect of those who are listening is one of wonder and amazement and perplexity. It's a natural effect. You you would expect people to respond this way. One uh, pastor said it this way. You could imagine... Or because these are Galileans who are speaking. Galileans or, or Galilee is sort of a backwater town, uh, kind of known for being sort of podunk in that day. Uh, people from Galilee, well, most of, so uh, Jesus was from Galilee. His, his disciples were as well. They, most of them were fishermen, so they're blue-collar workers. They would have known God's word in some sense, but they're not trained as rabbis or in other things. And so here you have these people who are a lot like one pastor said, like Uncle Sai from Duck Dynasty. Who are, now, who are now speaking in other languages these mighty works of God, pointing people to the Messiah. And people will see this happen. This is amazing. Something's going on here. And in this amazement, some, there are two groups of people uh, that react to this. One group reacts with sincere uh, wonder and, and sincere desire to know more. They ask the question, what does this mean? What does this mean? This is a big deal. These backwater guys from Podunk, Galilee, speaking in languages they should not know what is happening. And then you have others who are amazed but still incredulous. And they accuse the believers, the disciples, of being drunk first thing in the morning. They say they are filled with new wine. As we look at the arrival of the Holy Spirit here in Acts chapter 2. 1 through 13, we find here that the purpose of the Holy Spirit's presence in the lives of the believers then and the lives of the believers now is to embolden and empower them to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. That's what the Spirit comes to do, and that's what the Spirit leads the disciples to do. Take you back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8 again. What does Jesus say? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And what will they do with that power? They will be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. What happens when the Holy Spirit falls on the disciples at Pentecost? They are empowered to be Christ's witnesses. Not, not empowered to turn water into wine, not empowered to raise the dead, not empowered to uh, do other sorts of miraculous things, though these things will happen uh, and things like them later on in the course of Acts, but primarily to be witnesses to Jesus. So that when we look at the falling of the Holy Spirit here, we ought not to look to it hoping for God to repeat such a dramatic scene every day or every time we gather as a church. Pentecost is not a repeatable event. An event like this happens twice in all of Scripture and both times in Acts. Once, the first time here to the disciples as they're gathered, and then the second time in Acts 10 as the Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles, the first group of Gentiles who hear the gospel and respond in faith. That's the only time it happens. This is not normative for the church. What we find in the rest of the New Testament, however, is that to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, even as the disciples are here, is a rather non-dramatic experience for believers. It doesn't come with a lot of fanfare. It doesn't come with tongues of fire falling on everybody all the time. What God is doing at Pentecost and then later in Acts 10, as we said, is not normative for the church. Don't expect every Sunday when we gather for the Holy Spirit to come with a rushing wind and to shake the house, you know, or the the church building and for tongues of fire to come down and all of us start speaking in other languages. Don't expect that. That's not normative. But... 
The boldness and urgency that the Spirit gives to the disciples to share the gospel is normative. The energy... The urgency with which the disciples then begin speaking about who God is and what he has done through Christ and in Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, that is normative. That ought to wake you up in the morning. Expect to be excited about the gospel when we gather as a church on Sunday. So then as the Spirit emboldens you, Christian, to declare the things that Christ has done, to share the gospel, you can expect people to, to generally be amazed at your sincerity and the way that you are moved by what you believe. You should expect people to respond in amazement, maybe even perplexity, like that first group of Jews did when they heard the gospel from the disciples the first time. But you can also expect many people to think that you're a raving lunatic. I would encourage you, friends, Christian, followers of Jesus, brothers and sisters, not to be dissuaded by those who mock you, but to continue to share the gospel with those who ask of you, what can all of this mean? What does this mean for me? There are many who will mock. There are many who will, who, who, who will despise us for our faith in Christ. But there will be some, as there were on that day, who say, what does this all mean? What does this mean for me, Christian? Those are the ones to whom we take the gospel of Christ. Those are the ones that, 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 that we give of ourselves to get the gospel to. We want everyone to hear it, but especially those who want to know what does this mean for me. They're asking that question. What does this mean for us? And others are saying, these guys are drunk. They don't know what's going on here in Acts. And so in verses 14 through 21, we read this. Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. He said, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And here he cites Joel chapter 2. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter, in these verses, and at the response of those who are hearing and seeing the things going on, gives an explanation as to the fulfilled promise of God that they are witnessing. An explanation to God's fulfilled promise here at Pentecost. He first, in verses 14 and 15, addresses the skeptics. In verse 14, he uh, speaks to all of those who are hearing. And likely now we find he's speaking in Aramaic. He's not speaking in, in another uh, strange, uh, not strange, but foreign language, but a language that all of them would have known. In verse 15, he says to those <clears throat> who think that they are drunk, it's not possible it's only the third hour of the day. And during, uh, uh, during Pentecost and during this time of, of feast and prayer and celebration and worship to God, it was common for Jews not to even eat anything until 10 o'clock in the morning after their morning prayers. So here it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. Peter's saying, nobody's even had anything to eat yet. How can you accuse us of being drunk? Something else is going on here, Peter says. And he turns their attention to new covenant realities that are now explained and that they see witnessed before them. New covenant realities that he is explaining. 
Peter cites Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 31, here in Acts 2, 17 through 21. As being fulfilled, excuse me, it's Joel 2, 28 through 32. As being fulfilled in what the Jews are seeing and hearing. Peter says, you remember what the prophet Joel said? That's what's happening today. Now, if we were to turn back to Joel, the Old Testament prophet, uh, Joel chapter 2, we would see there that the Lord speaks through his prophet to give details about what is commonly called in the Old Testament, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a concept throughout the the prophets, particularly in the Old Testament, of this day when God would bring all things to their righteous conclusion. When he judges both the living and the dead and God sets everything right. In that time, in the day of the Lord, uh, Joel prophesied that God would pour out his spirit on his people. And persons from all backgrounds and social strata would prophesy and they would dream God-given dreams and have God-given visions. Peter says to the crowd that is listening, what you are seeing today is that prophecy come true. The day of the Lord is approaching, and what you see happening is evidence of that, Peter tells this crowd. Moreover, this is evidence of the coming of the new covenant. You'll remember from the time that we spent in uh, Jeremiah that last week of December, and in uh, Jeremiah 31 and in Ezekiel 36, this promise of God that he would create a new covenant with his people, and he would put his spirit in them, that he would, through his spirit, write his law on their hearts. This at Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit, is that. It is God's promise of a new covenant and a new covenant people come true. And Peter is pointing the people to that. Pentecost is a day of promises fulfilled by God. Promises in that day over 600 years old, now dramatically and undeniably answered in what the disciples are doing and what the crowd in Jerusalem is hearing. This we know for them and for us is true as well, that the presence of the Holy Spirit in the Christian's life is a sign of God's faithfulness. Peter's telling the people, God is faithful to his promise. He made this promise. Today he is fulfilling it. He's fulfilling it in their, uh, uh, to those who are witnessing it happening in the disciples' lives. And Christian, he has fulfilled that promise in you when you place your faith and your trust in Jesus. The Holy Spirit of God that lives in you is evidence of God's faithfulness to his promise. You wonder if God will answer all of his promises. God really cares if God really sees and knows and listens and, and, and is aware of all the things going on in your life. Do you, do you long to know if God can be trusted with things? Well, friend, if you trust Christ and you know that you possess the Holy Spirit of God, that he lives in you, you can know and have confidence that God is faithful to his promises. He promised he would send his spirit to, to live in the hearts of his new covenant people. And Christian, if you have the Holy Spirit of God, if you are trusting Jesus, you can know that God is faithful. Peter continues speaking about this faithful God and how he is faithful to fulfill his promise. Continuing in verses 22 through 36, he says this. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, and here he cites One of David's Psalms, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. 
For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. But being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. And he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up of that. We are all witnesses being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the father, the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing for David did not ascend into the heavens. But he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know. For certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. God, who is faithful to answer his promises and sending the Holy Spirit, was faithful before that to send his promised Messiah. And so in these verses, 22 through 36, Peter continues in this first Christian sermon with the verification of the promised Messiah. He begins in verse 22 with the proof of his life, the proof of Jesus' life. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Peter points to the real person of Jesus of Nazareth, not a fictitious character, but a, the very man who just 50 days prior to this event was nailed to a cross with a sign above his head that said the same. Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. Not only was Jesus... A real figure that those who were listening were aware of, and many of whom may even have witnessed be crucified just 50 days prior. But during his life, Peter says, Jesus performed mighty works and wonders and signs in the power of God, all of which were uh, for the purpose of affirming that he was indeed the Son of God. He points to the proof of Christ's life. Then he continues in verses 22 through 32 uh, about the truth of Christ's death and resurrection. Not only did Jesus definitely live, but he certainly died on the cross at the hands of lawless men. And we find here in Luke's narrative that nobody there who is witnessing, uh, listening to Peter say these things, none of them are arguing the fact. None of them are arguing the fact that Jesus was from Nazareth. None of them are arguing the fact that, that he did mighty works and wonders. None of them are arguing the fact that he was even nailed to the cross. Peter says he, Jesus, definitely lived. He certainly died. You're all witnesses of that. He died at the hands of lawless men, those who sought their own gain, their own will above the will of God. Referring to the Romans who crucified Jesus, these could be called godless men who knew neither God nor his purposes. And as certainly as Jesus died, Peter says, he was also raised from the dead. Church, it is critical this morning that we see that this was not unplanned or unintended by God. None of this was by accident. Rather, Jesus' death was literally, as Peter says, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That means that God the Father has eternally known from before the foundations of the earth that he would send the Son to be the sacrifice for the sins of mankind. Friends, Jesus is not God's plan B. Jesus is not God's last resort. He has always been God's plan A. And his plan A has always been successful. 
those who delivered Jesus over to be crucified and killed are responsible for their sins of doing so. Absolutely. They are responsible and guilty for crucifying the Son of God. But God had eternally intended and ensured that their evil actions would work for His good purposes and for His glory. So certain was God's plan to save His Son, the Messiah crucified for the sins of the world and raised from the dead, that he spoke about it through his prophet David, Peter says, the king of Israel some 1,000 years before Jesus was even ever born. He cites David again using Psalm 16, 8 through 11. Peter points to the authority of God's word as it speaks beforehand about the resurrection of Jesus. This is here in verses 25 through 28, that citation from the Psalms there. All this is to say that the disciples aren't making the stuff up on their own, and neither are they creating a myth about the Messiah out of whole cloth. Peter is carefully taking pains to say, this is what God has been saying he would do all along. For a thousand years, we have known God was going to do this. Did we know it was going to look like this? Did we expect it to happen this way? No, but we know God has been speaking about it. And oh, by the way, We're placing our own reputations and lives on the line here by declaring to you that we are eyewitnesses to these events. We are are giving testimony. We are giving witness in the legal sense to these things having happened. That Jesus is the Messiah, crucified for sins, raised from the dead is our testimony, Peter says, under penalty of perjury. He says, of this we are all witnesses. But Peter doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop with the truth of Christ's life and death. He continues in verses 33 through 36 with the evidence of Christ's ascension. So not only is God's word spoken ahead of time about Jesus' death and resurrection, but also it is spoken about his exaltation, him being lifted up and seated at the right hand of God. Not only was Jesus raised from the dead, says Peter, but he ascended to heaven to sit as Lord over all creation next to his father. Once more, the Apostle Peter brings King David's writings to bear in this witness. Citing Psalm 110, verse 1, in verses 34 and 35, which in Hebrew reads this, Yahweh said to my Adonai, sit at my right hand. Yahweh is the personal name of God in Hebrew, revealed to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3. Adonai, the the second word that... uh, David uses in Psalm 110 is the word meaning master or Lord. But David, as king of Israel, had no master but God. And still he writes, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Or Yahweh said to my Adonai, sit at my right hand. David here is recording in Psalm 110, a divinely received conversation between Yahweh and David's Lord. So who then, we might ask, is David's Lord to whom Yahweh is speaking and about which Peter is speaking? It is this Jesus, Peter says in verse 36, that God has made both Lord and Christ, both King and Messiah, God in flesh, who is master and savior. So see in all of this what Peter is doing. He is presenting the person and work of Jesus to those who are listening to his spirit empowered witness. Friends, in response to this, the the pattern that we see and and the pattern that we ought to uh, uh, emulate and and seek to replicate in our lives is this, that spirit-empowered Christians lead others to Jesus. Filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter speaks to the crowd in Jerusalem, and what does he do? He points them to Jesus. His entire first speech, the entire first sermon at Pentecost is all about Jesus. Who he was, what he did, that he died, that he was raised, that they saw him ascended even to the Father. 
Christian, you who know the promise of God by the Holy Spirit that lives in you to empower you to be witnesses to Christ, you who are Spirit-empowered Christians, your job is to lead others to Jesus. My job is to lead others to Jesus. There's no greater commission. There is no greater calling. There is no greater purpose with which to live your life or greater end to seek in your life than to lead others to Jesus. And God has given you the Holy Spirit, His Spirit in you to empower you to do just that. But Peter doesn't stop there. He continues in verses 37 through 41. There he says, Now, when they heard this, this is what Luke writes, And when the crowd heard this, they were cut to the heart and Peter, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, And for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. And so those who received his word were baptized, and and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Peter and the other disciples empowered by the Holy Spirit to give witness to Jesus, to lead others to Jesus, then extend an invitation to receive the promise of salvation to those who have heard the gospel. We see here in these verses, conviction by the gospel. The gospel convicts people. Luke says, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Uh, that, the, the, the word that is translated cut to the heart, is this is the only place in all of the New Testament that it appears. That's not necessarily significant, but what it means is that uh, literally stabbed in the heart. Cut, cut in your soul by what they have heard. As the Jews hear this sermon, they are convicted by the gospel. And they inquire as to the proper response to these truths. They ask, what must we do? Friends, the gospel convicts us. The gospel, the good news that Christ came to give his life as a sacrifice for sinners. By the, which, uh, by the way, all of us are sinners. So that means Christ died for our sins. And that he was raised from the dead points to the power of God in who Jesus is. And that God is able to raise him from the dead points us to the fact that we can also be raised from the dead. We know that our sins separate us from God. We are guilty of our sins. And so we're, we are the ones who have separated ourselves from our creator. When we tell people this, when Peter tells people this, that their, their sins have separated them from God, that they have killed God's Messiah, they're convicted. So Christian, you can expect that when you share the gospel with people, when you tell them that they're sinners, that they need forgiveness of sins and salvation to be right with God, you can bet that they're going to be convicted by it. And people respond to conviction all sorts of ways. Some people respond with, with brokenness, being cut to the heart like the way some of these Jews were that day. Brothers, what must we do? What do we do? This is terrible news for us and also great news at the same time. What do we do? Others will look at you with incredulity. They'll laugh in your face. They'll continue on. They'll be angry with you because they don't like or receive the conviction that the Holy Spirit is laying on their lives. Christian, the, the, the gospel should convict you regularly as well. Every day, Christian, you should be convicted by the gospel. Every day, the gospel reminds us of our our continued need for a Savior. We sin every day. At least I do. I need God's forgiveness every day. My daily sin points to my daily need for a risen Savior. The gospel, as I reflect on it and rehearse it with myself, convicts me regularly. 
We need to respond to the gospel daily as well, Christians. Walking in repentance. Continually, regularly placing our faith and trust in Jesus. That's not to say we get saved every day. But we walk in salvation every day. We're convicted by the gospel. And we respond in the only way that we can when the gospel comes. People there in Peter's day say, brothers, what must we do? Peter gives them an invitation to salvation. So I'll tell you exactly what you need to do. Peter implores them to repent of sin. That means to literally turn away from sin, to make a 180 degree turn away from one direction you're going uh, to go in the opposite direction. He says, repent of your sin, turn away from it, forsake it, leave it behind and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and receive the promised Holy Spirit. Peter says, you want to know what to be saved? You want to know what to do with the conviction that you feel? Repent and believe and be baptized. Peter here says, repent and be baptized. But when he says repent, when, when we take that with the, the rest of the, uh, what we know of Scripture, we know that repentance isn't just a thing on its own, but that repentance is always coupled with faith. It's always handcuffed to or, or joined to belief. Repentance and faith, faith in Christ, faith in his life, death, and resurrection, faith in the person Jesus always precedes baptism. They're the grounds of our salvation in Christ, repentance and faith. Uh, uh, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8. It's by grace you are saved through faith and this not of yourselves, not by works so that no man may boast. But baptism, Christian, we know, is that which identifies us publicly with our profession of faith in Christ and identifies us with our submission to his lordship in our lives. Because faith is an internal, personal, spiritual exercise. You can't do faith with your hands. Because it's an internal thing, entering the waters of baptism gives visual confirmation to the watching world that you have made and, committed, and are committed to that invisible and spiritual act of faith in Christ. That's how we understand baptism in this church, and that's how we practice it. Baptism doesn't save anybody, but it's a picture of the salvation that has already happened by faith and repentance in the life of the one that we're baptizing. Peter says, repent and be baptized. Do what is internal, and then demonstrate externally that you are committed to Christ as Lord. The result of Peter's call to repentance and faith. When they say, brothers, what do we do? He says, repent and believe. The result of Peter's call to repentance and faith in Jesus as Lord and Christ is overwhelming. Led to a fork in the road of their faith and spiritual condition on that day, some 3,000 people respond by taking the path that leads selfish ambition behind to follow a risen Savior. 3,000 people Turn from sin to trust in Jesus on that day. At Peter's simple preaching of the gospel. Church, the gospel in and of itself has the power to bring hardened sinners to their knees in repentance and trust in Christ. And the gospel has the power to reveal to even the most self-righteous person their need for a savior. The promise of salvation from sin and a right relationship with God, your creator, is for you. It's for me. It's for all who are like us and for all who are unlike us. It is for Jews and for Gentiles. It is for those who are near to God. And friends, it is especially for those, as Peter says, who are far off. It is for everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. We don't get to be selfish with the gospel. We don't get to be possessive with the gospel. It's not our gospel. It's God's gospel. It's not our way of salvation. It's God's way of salvation. 
And not just for you, not just for me, not just for white people, not just for brown people, not just for black or Asian people. It's for all people. It's not just for Jews. It's not just for Gentiles. It's for persons of all ethnicities. It's not just for men. It's not just for women. It is for all. It's not just for adults. It's not just for children. It is for everyone. There is no one who does not need the gospel. My own heart is broken by this because daily I go out, I go to Starbucks or McDonald's or Taco Bell. It sounds like I'm trying to kill myself by eating. <laughs> I go to these play, I go to Target or Walmart if I'm feeling crazy and I'm there and everywhere I go as I just do what Americans do and spend money and shop and things, I see people everywhere I go of every shape, of every size, of every age, gender, Ethnic background, cultural persuasion, lost people all around me. Sea of lost people. Most of them don't look like me. Most of them don't talk like me. Most of them don't have the background that I have. And most of the time, I'm silent. The gospel is for everyone. There's not a person in the world that does not need to know Christ. And yet we have this tendency. I have this tendency. So if I have it, my guess is you have it, some of you as well. But I'll be honest and you guys can keep your secrets. Okay, that's okay this morning. Sometimes I just want to have Jesus for myself. Sometimes I just don't want to talk to people who aren't like me. Sometimes... I make judgments about where people are spiritually and their receptivity to the gospel without even saying a word to them. The fact that the gospel is for everyone is cutting to us as Christians who don't always share it with everyone. Peter on that day is pointing a global representation of God's people uh, of Israel to the Savior. And we will see in the course of Acts, Peter again then extending that same gospel in Acts 10 to those who are not Jews and to everyone else, opening the floodgates of the gospel and the way to salvation for all people of all nations. In that, and in these last verses, we see this. That Spirit-empowered, repenting Christians who know Christ and who are sharing the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit call others to repent and trust in Jesus as well. We don't just share Jesus. We don't just lead people to Jesus. We ask the question, do you believe this? Will you believe this? Will you repent? Will you turn from your sin and trust Christ? Will you do this? It's, it's easy, I think, sometimes to, to share our testimony. This is who God is. This is what he's done in my life. This is what the gospel is, that there's a, a God in heaven who created us to know and love and worship him. This is what sin is. It's our rebellion against God, that we do things by our own authority and not in submission to him. That sin has, has broken our relationship with God, but, but we, we know that God loves us. He sent his son Jesus to die for our sins, be raised from the dead, and then you can be saved by trusting in him. But we don't ask the question when we share that with our friends, friend, will you trust Jesus? Do you believe this? Will you do this? So it's like we put all of the information out in front. We give them, we, we give them the best meal that, that they can ever taste or ever uh, indulge in in their lives with no silverware or napkins or anything else to eat it with. Good luck. Here's the gospel. Good luck. 
put forks and knives in the hands of hungry souls as you present the gospel to them to say, friend, will you receive this? Friend, will you believe this? Friend, will you turn from your sin and trust in Christ? Christian, brothers and sisters of First Baptist West Albuquerque, that's what spirit-empowered witnesses to Christ do. We who have the Holy Spirit living in us, the promise of God being fulfilled, empowered to share Christ, to point others to Him, to lead others to Him, we are also called to bring others in repented, to, to repent of their sin and to trust in Christ. The only question that remains is, will we do it? Will we do it? Do we care enough? Are our hearts broken enough about the eternal destiny of those who do not know Christ to invite them to repent and believe? As I pray, the praise team is going to come and you prepare your hearts to respond to God's word this morning. Father God. You who saved us by your grace through our faith in Jesus and have gifted us with.